His wife got him a beautiful neon sign of his logo. <laughs> and he hasn't hung it yet. It's true. That is true. I'm just always busy. I'm always, I always arrive here and I go, oh, I forgot the hammer and nail. I, 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 I need to, uh, I'll, I'll show it off real quick. It's like a real influencer sign, you know? Yeah, no, he's a real influencer. He is. Look at that. Holy shit. Come on. You need to sell some fried chicken with that. <laughs> Ethan, you're such a hard worker. Well, so I've been trying to finish my book. And so I've been waking up at like 1.30 in the morning and writing through the night. Mm. And I was writing at 2.30. It was 2.30 in the morning. And I got a notification on my phone. And I was like, who the fuck is texting me at 2.30? And it was fucking Ethan Strauss publishing something. <laughs> because you thought it was still the day before it was must have been 1230 where you were oh man yeah yeah um i okay so i, I don't know if we're doing the show yet i don't know if the show has started um i am uncomfortable with the topic of how hard i work because it's up for debate and to some people it's not a lot and to other people it's a lot and i'm not sure how to strike that balance. I just feel like I need to keep the pressure on me because it's just so easy not to be generative. And unless I start, I, I just try to write before I go to bed these days. I try to write a little bit. And sometimes I might get a thousand words and sometimes I might get absolutely nothing, but I'll know what I'm going to do the next day. And that's become valuable for me. And I'm, I tend to sink into laziness and sloth and not completing what I should be doing unless I'm doing that that thing at the end of the night. So at least that's the tip I'm on right now. But yeah, you combine it with the podcast and studying for the podcast and whatnot. It can get a little you get a little tricky. It's crazy. I'm I'm distracted by the fact that your lighting is so much better than mine right now. <laughs> I mean You've got like a real uh, professional setup over there. I am still in my closet as you can see. That's okay. That's okay. It's probably and I've better. I've got like shadows and shit on my face and everything's I mean, the wrong. Like that's, that's. Why is the light purple is what I want to know about your closet. Why purple? How? Well, it's because I have track lighting in here and they have a purple hue. I really detest uh, overhead light. Mm. It, 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 it stresses me out. Yeah, and so yeah. I have this track lighting that is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be purple, but for some reason it does cast a purple glow. People always are like, are you are you broadcasting from a nightclub? Mm. I'm like, no. I mean, I don't know that it even looks like that in a nightclub. I went to Hakkasan in Vegas a couple weeks ago um, for about five minutes uh, because friend of a friend could get you in. And there is just is not appealing. It was just not appealing at all. What's Hakkasan? Um, it sounds like Hackensack. <laughs> some nightclub in Las Vegas. I was there. There were college friends there, friends from college. And uh, is it a like single a strip friend. club? No, it's not a strip club. Uh, it's just a nightclub. But yeah, the single friends sometimes have different, a different pace of life with different aims and different goals. Um, I wound up at the uh, Papa Shot. Was this at the MGM? I can't remember. It's at the MGM or whatever wherever Hakkasan's at. And I just started going crazy at the, uh, the, the Papa shot and um, I broke 100 and I need to send evidence because apparently Papa shot gives you a sticker. If you break 100. Does this mean you minute. took a hundred shots? 
No, it just means your score reached uh, reached 100. And uh, yes, oh, I became... Oh, we score in what? Uh, this little game, this little basketball game where you just kind of rapid fire the ball. Oh. Uh, you pop a shot and uh, I oh, don't know. pop a shot. I was hearing pop, pop a, a shots. Like, like Hakkasan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is these. You, you live you in a different world. Well, I forget uh, where you went to school. It was in California. Yeah, it was uh, Cal, as they say, UC Berkeley. Um, oh yes. I don't have any real attachment to it, even though I ended up living nearby it. I don't. I don't like Berkeley as a place. I, mm-hmm. I've talked about this with Jay Caspian King. Um, I find it to have a real spiritual darkness to it and beautiful it's absolutely beautiful it's so scenic um i think the street uh marin ave marin boulevard i don't know what you call it it's it's marin street i don't know but it goes it it goes on such an incline and the architecture is these two-door uh two-door architecture which i was informed of because i was there with your podcasting partner nancy rommelman in this exact neighborhood and I was saying, I think this is the most beautiful neighborhood in America. Huh. But but whether it's the school and everything around it, and this might dovetail with some of the topics we, we get into, I just feel like there's a coldness, a lack of connectivity and atomization to it. It almost felt as though in the pandemic, once everybody started wearing masks at the grocery store, that it just formalized what had always been so, which is that we're just ships passing through the night. We're not mm-hmm. connected. We don't believe in anything. We don't, we're not tethered to anything beyond ourselves. There's no religion here. Family is not really emphasized. If I take my children to Fourth Street in Berkeley, they will get far less attention than if I took my dog to Fourth Street in Berkeley. And I love my dog and I believe he deserves attention, but there's something. Right. There's just something odd and unmoored to it. And I can't tell if if I have a particular unfair sensitivity to it uh, or if I'm just attuned to something in the air and in the atmosphere. Jay Caspian King, he likes it. He, he quite likes living in Berkeley. I don't live in Berkeley proper. I live near Berkeley. Um, and the school, I think, is part of that. I did not view it as a place of happiness. I do not have school pride. I don't. I don't watch the games, uh, you know, pounding my chest. And I I just don't, I felt like I was just a number. I felt like the institution didn't care if I lived or died, which I guess is their right. But I didn't see, I didn't feel like I was part of anything in the way some of my friends felt when they went to, uh, went to other schools. How how many people is it? I don't know. It might be 30,000 something. I, I, I can't remember. It's a lot of people. Uh, how many people went to your school? I read about your college experience when you wrote about it in your memoir. Mm, yeah, well, UT itself is 55,000, I think. It's one of the biggest state yeah. schools. But I was in a small liberal arts program that was only 150 people. So mm. I had sort of the best of both worlds. And then I had my state tuition and my small class liberal arts education. Have you watched Everybody Wants Some, uh, the Linklitter movie mm. that is depicting Mm-mm. the fictional college baseball team, maybe in 1980, at a fictional, I have to think it's UT. Um, and it just takes you back in that time and place like only he can do it. 
Yeah, I should watch it. I mean, I remember when that movie came out and I was like, oh, yeah, Linklater's a jock. Like, I always forget that about yeah. him. You know, uh, I didn't I didn't see it when it came out. It wasn't it didn't seem interesting to me, but I hadn't thought about the fact that it was probably set at UT. I'm, I'm sure it is. Yeah, it's not UT proper. They give it yeah. some fake Texas university name. And yes, he is such a jock. Uh, the casting call meant that you had to send in highlights of yourself playing baseball to show that you could mm-hmm. capably you could capably yeah. do it because that was important to him that somebody practicing and they don't even play in a game. It's just you know little practices that they would be convincing. But it's not a deep movie. It's just a little slice of life. And it's just dudes being dudes in 1980 at a fictional University of Texas, which in of itself is fascinating because I'm obsessed with the idea that the more specific something is, just A, the broader it is, and B, just yeah. the more absorbing it is. And you really feel, okay, this is what it was like back then. This feels like real banter between these guys. This feels like how they would go about a night and how they would party and what they would pursue and how they would relate to each other. It all just feels so real. And so in that way, similar to, I guess, a lot of his movies, uh, I I would say that it captures that. But I should probably do an intro, Sarah. I should probably be a professional or something like it. Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. It is House of Strauss. We are joined by Sarah Heppala. She is well known uh, for a variety, for a variety of reasons, uh, mostly for having been my boss. That's number one. Uh, it's a number one bo- re- re- uh, Google search for me. Yes, number one Google search. Uh, my boss uh, at Salon.com back in the day also wrote the best-selling memoir in is it 2016 i screwed this up last time by the way is it uh 2016 2015 it's 15 okay i'm curious about this because you mentioned and you mentioned the date of another uh alcoholism memoir um that was 2016 being made into a movie and i i kind of wondered if uh if there might be some uh thoughts on that but it is called blackout and it is absolutely fantastic i could not recommend it highly enough um and is co-host of the smoke em. well you got him podcast with nancy rommelman uh who's also a friend and a friend of the podcast and i have called sarah here to talk about a piece of memoir writing i mean who better right it just makes total sense it is i mean i think people might even be dismissing the strangeness of this or maybe the import of it because Mm. pieces of writing don't generally get discussed on elon musk's x anymore they have made an effort to de-emphasize links which everybody is trying to figure out work around yeah used to be people would argue about an article and they would say i like this or i didn't like this or oh my god how horrific this thing last week uh, in the cut, which I think is some sort of offshoot of New York Magazine, uh, it's called "The Lure of Divorce" by Emily Gould. Uh, it was uh, released on Valentine's Day, 
The subhead is seven years into my marriage. I hit a breaking point and had to decide whether life would be better without my husband in it. And this right here is a scissor, Sarah, where I saw a lot of people repulsed by Emily Gould, uh, repulsed by this piece of writing. But I saw other people, some people I'm kind of in the neighborhood of, defending it as art and defending her more generally. And I just want to get in a conversation about it, but I also want to get in a conversation of, hey, what are the rules with memoir? Um, when revealing bad things about yourself that other people can judge, what is fair? But let's start with this. Uh, how did you feel about it? Well, the first thing I'll say is that this exploded last week and I was on a deadline. And, you know, it's mm. that horrible thing where, like, everybody starts talking about a piece and it's like, wow, I really better get on this piece because there were the ideas, like the rancor and then the defense, defensiveness. And then, you know, I hate this. I love this. And I was like, I don't know what I think. I haven't mm. read it yet. I was really prepared for it to be a lot more provocative, I have to say. And like, like, okay. I, I do a podcast with Nancy Rommelman, Smoke Em If You Got Em. And, you know, she texted me and she said something that was so over the top. And we we talked about it on our last pod, too. And and um, it was just kind of like, basically, in effect, this is the kind of piece that signals the downfall of civilization. You know, mm. and I was just like, whoa, mm. I've got to read this, you know, because to me, that's like, all right, get on it. Finish this story so you can read this horrible piece, you know, smell this bad milk. Um, mm. so I read it and I was like, oh, wow, I really like this. You know, uh, the opening, um, she describes basically having too many SSRIs build up in her body and she starts drinking a lot and goes into what I, uh, this once happened to me and it was diagnosed as hypomania. And so you get this, like, you're really rapid talking and you feel super powerful. It's actually an incredible feeling. I was walking down mm. the street and I was like, I saw this car coming towards me and I was like, I can stop that with my hand. And wow. I was like, oh, I think there's something wrong with me. Um, I don't think I can actually stop cars with my hand. But I felt this way. And I was drink one of the one of the ways, only ways you can kind of come down from that, or at least... I knew to come down from it was to drink a lot, a lot, a lot and smoke a lot, a lot, a lot. Mm. It was just like fed all these compulsive behaviors. So I was drinking all the time, sleeping very little. And I kind of lost my mind in a mini way. Now, Emily Gould lost her mind in a much more dramatic public way. She was on Twitter. She was telling everybody like, I'm checking into a rehab facility. I'm out. You know, she was doing all this crazy stuff. But here was this experience that I had had. And I really only knew it to be my own. Um, and she describes this spin out and I thought she did it really well. I mean, I think a lot of people see that opening and there's a lot of like kind of rank entitlement, but I think it's mm. intentional. You know, I think yeah. what she's revealing and, and I think sometimes it's hard to look at is the monstrous writer's ego. And, mm. and we have that, you know. One of the reasons I love personal essays, so when I was at Salon, in addition to being your boss, which was almost a full-time job, 
Um, <laughs> I ran the personal essay section and it was it was a job that was basically carved out for me because I had gotten so kind of clever. Like I really excelled at this part of my job so much so that my boss at the time was like, just make that your full job. So we made a full personal essay section that I ran. I ran four personal essays a week, um, which is an enormous amount of copy to kind of be putting out in the world, like full stories with narrative arcs. I mean, I did not always have the highest standards. There was a little bit of a conveyor belt for a while there. Um, but one of the reasons that I love personal essays is that I love their ability to punch through the noise, the noise of politics, the noise of the horse race of whether it's, you know, everybody talking about this movie or that, you know, it's like one person's singular story. Like you said before, you know, like when you talk about the specifics of something, people can find the universals. So the ability to get very, very specific about your life and let people kind of place their hand in yours when it fits um, I think it's an extraordinary thing. So I'm predisposed to like this piece. But I think a lot of the negativity derives from that opening section, which I think is deliberately, um, you know, bratty, uh, self-absorbed. Like these are the ruminations of a not well person. Now, later she's diagnosed with bipolar, whatever. I, I, I don't the reason I'm kind of going, I, I don't know, is because during my hypomanic uh, episode, somebody was like, a, a, a therapist was like, I think you should be checked out for bipolar. And it, it's just really hard to tell when you've got the alcohol on top of the pharmaceuticals on top of like, and you, you no sleep and all of it gets, you know, wound up together. But anyway, you know, I thought it was a really neat thing to bring us into the story in that way. And I thought she ultimately redeemed herself. But, um, but I think a lot of people you know, look, you're right. It blew up. It blew up on social media, but it's not clear to me that everybody read it, you know? Hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think about it because you, you're in a tricky position when you assess it, right? Because it can feel a little bit like living in a glass house. But I will just say, uh, as somebody who read your book and read this piece, I came away from your book, which reveals a lot of human, frailty and mistakes and foibles and everything else. Um, I came away liking you mm -hmm. and I came away from this piece disliking her, which does not invalidate it as a work of art. Right. But I came away from it not liking her at the same time. Um, she didn't obscure a lot of bad things about herself. Well, maybe she did and she just never told us about them, but um, she she made herself the villain of, of her own story. It seems a little bit like that's intentional, but it's almost hard to it's hard to know. It is difficult to know sometimes how intentional that choice is versus somebody who can't even uh, differentiate uh, good from bad um, and moral from immoral. Uh, there's a part in it where she. I would say sort of um, offhandedly refers to cheating on her husband and it's one sentence. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just in the way that you would kind of in passing uh, mention something and it made an impact on her. She can't go to a yoga retreat ever again, uh, I think is the the line there. But it, it, it's tricky because if somebody has a mental illness and they have, it's compelled them to act in certain ways that are totally immoral 
and not just deranging to their own life, but to the lives of the people around them who care about them. And she has obviously a husband and kids. Um, it's difficult to know where to blame the illness versus the person where to go. Look, I don't like you divorced to use the term from the illness. I'm pretty sure that you've got right. a narcissism that isn't necessarily clinical, but is unchecked due to your own laziness and inability to grow up and be accountable for your actions. Yeah. It's difficult to know where to make those judgments, not knowing a person, but I think that's part of what people are reacting to. I think they are. Let me ask you this question, because likability is a really um, kind of fraught and electric term in the women's writing spaces. For many, many decades, women have been told that if they want to write their own story, they need to be likable and relatable. And I think in some ways that's a no-duh kind of thing. Mm. Um, but let me ask you this. Do you think Tony Soprano is likable? No. And he's very compelling. Do you think and Don Draper way, is likable? No, I don't think Don Walter Draper's White. Likeable. I'm going to keep going. Yeah, I'm basically yeah. going to give you all the greatest hits. But, of... but here, here's my here's my rejoinder. How annoying would they be as characters if they were the ones uh, invested in their own story, as opposed to these people that were voyeuristically watching? If Tony Soprano was like point. Chris was like Chris Moltisanti, and he wanted to make a movie about being Tony Soprano, there is this thing of wanting us to get invested uh changes uh how much we uh you know we we will abide but yes no it's, it's definitely fair um and i, I guess what i what i'm saying is that um i'm not sure how important it is to the story's impact and value for her to be likable yeah because to me what the story does is it opens up a conversation about some of the unrealistic expectations around marriage um, some of the traps that women feel they are in, whether they have been put in there or put themselves in there. I think a really interesting tension in that story is her is her inclination to blame her husband for doing things she herself does not want to do. So she'll mm. say, yeah. you know, he works harder than me and his career is better. So I hung back and, and dealt with the kids. But I also, it's because I'm lazy, but she wants to be mad about it. This is an adolescent posture where I want to not do the thing, but I want to be mad that I don't get to do the thing. And I yeah. think it's terribly germane to this conversation because I think it's a place where a lot of women, especially women's literature writ large, has been stuck for a long time. They've been mm. stuck in a corridor between I am the agent of my destiny and I'm a protected class that needs men's you know, men to take care of me and all the guys are keeping me down. Somebody help me. And a lot of this, and I include this in my own story. I mean, a lot of my drinking was kind of like, help me, help me, help me. And it was like, you finally have to turn the corner and say, I'm going to have to help myself. I'm going to have mm. to save myself. But, um, and I think she does turn that corner in this story, but she does it a bit more subtly. I think it's also terribly, like completely possible, Ethan, that I'm just a more likable person. Than Emily Gould. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would, uh, I, I would co-sign that. Um, she's had some moments. I think her big viral moment was defending the Gawker stalker, uh, you know, stalking of celebrities and invasion Do you remember of their privacy. That? The clip on YouTube of her and Jimmy Kimmel, yeah, where Jimmy Kimmel drops the funny act and says, "I don't find it very humorous," and really 
took her to task and uh, it was not a good moment for her. She's somebody who seems like operates with a certain amount of moral relativism, um, to say the least. Now, I, I should have added a little more texture to it where her husband is the successful writer, Keith Gessen, um, who... That's how you, I pronounce his last name. I get all caught up in the air. It's like, okay, because you leaned back, Sarah. I was like, wait, did I say that wrong? You oh, no, back I'm just like readjusting. Okay, good, good. Um, you know, brother of uh, Masha Gessen, and <laughs> it's a strange family. I read an article, I believe, by him about their son, who is this wild boy, and this is mentioned <laughs> in these, the, the Gould article, that there's a book that that is written about the raising of this boy named Rafi. And now that I have uh, two boys, one wild, one too little to be wild, but he's pre-wild, he'll be wild later on, um, I find that to be a, a little uncomfortable. Yeah. And this is this other aspect where I'm a voyeur, I want to know how other people live, but I think people react to this in a way that's different from yours, not just due to the likability, which we've established the vast like a likability gap, but you don't have kids. Yeah. And I think when kids are part of the equation, I think people react to it differently that look what you're doing right here. Maybe there's an artistic value to it, but I don't think you should be doing it. This doesn't seem like something that should be happening. Somebody else is going to have to live with the consequences of everything that you're revealing here. And it's funny because we're all going, it's unbecoming, but it seems like the family itself. I mean, Keith Gesson tweeted it out approvingly, uh, I guess is just signed on to it. He, he tweeted out beautiful essay by Emily about how she thought about divorcing me, but ultimately decided against it because I'm so good about taking out the recycling men take out the recycling. So I think that's this other part of it where people have a natural and I would say healthy pullback from somebody revealing these ugly things and this dirty laundry from a domestic situation that does involve children. I agree with you. This is actually one place where I went to the essay more prepared to dislike it because I have a lot of discomfort Um with women in particular, although men also write about their children, writing about their kids uh, at a time when the children cannot consent. They, mm. they don't get the choice. And I have two, you know, sort of mea culpas here. One is that parenting was one of the largest, you know, categories that we did at Salon. I had a ton of parenting essays. They always did really well. It was very much the like, I'm a mom and I, everyone, you know, like everything sucks and it's so lonely. Mm -hmm. You know, I think on my last podcast with you, we talked about the idea that, you know, there's like an Adam, uh, oh God, what's his freaking name? But anyway, documentary about how a lot of the the housewives' neuroses and volume addictions came ne not necessarily from not being in the workplace, but mm, from being, not being around um, people, not being around people, that they were the first canary in the coal mines of sort of atomistic individual society where everybody was siloed instead of being around their family, you know? And so anyway, the years that I was at Salon, women were really, you know, kind of, there was like a lot of cri de corps about the loneliness and the judgment and all this. Okay. Well, I learned a lesson really like about a year or two into my tenure there. 
So we ran an essay. Everyone thought it was really funny. All the editors were like cracking up about this. It was a mother who had a kid and had gone on a date and she was breastfeeding. I mean, I'm sorry, she had a second Mm -hmm. child and she Mm -hmm. was breastfeeding. So she's lactating. And she ends up doing like, like the the guy, instead of being horrified, is like turned on by this. And the date Mm. ends with like erotic lactation. Mm. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So that's the story. Um, And years later, maybe like two or three years later, I got an email from that woman asking me if if we could take it down because her daughter was being bullied at school about it. And she had an older daughter, you know, she had a newborn baby, but there was also a five-year-old who was now like seven or eight. And I was like, no, we can't, you know, that it's not policy, you know, to just take down stories because you don't want to own them anymore. But what I could do was uh, change the first name to an initial, which I did. And then from then on out, I sent out an email to anybody whose story I accepted, asking them to think long and hard about the names and details that they used in their story because it's one thing to sign off on your own details, but it's another thing to let those fly into the world. Um, And so I put certain checks and balances into the system, but the system went really fast, you know, but back to this issue about children and, and, you know, I, I, I don't have kids. I wish I had kids or maybe I don't, who knows, who knows what I think, read the second book. Um, (laughs) But I, I, I can't speak from any sort of, uh, you know, personal experience. I just know that it makes me uncomfortable when people write things like, I wish I weren't a mother and they had children. Yeah. I also happen to think that writing an essay about how you wish you weren't a mother is valuable because other mothers might like to know that, but maybe write it anonymously. You know, m- yes. maybe like if 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 the idea is to get this this painful truth out into the world so that people can feel less alone, then you don't necessarily need the status hit of your name being attached to it and your child being able to find it and your child's yeah. friends being able to find it. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know if having kids necessarily even changes the way I view this. I remember Another one of these literary couples, uh, Michael Chabon and his wife. Uh, Ayelet Waldman. Yes. I think she wrote some essay years ago about how she loved her husband more than her kids. She did. And uh, which, I mean, that's that's an intriguing thought to put out there, but it's a weird one. I, I don't, Maybe it wouldn't be crushing for them. Maybe at some level you would want that. It seems... Hey, my parents have a strong marriage that uh, they they love each other more than they love us. I, I guess it could be worse. But I remember I didn't have kids at that point, but I, I reacted to that going, you know, I did too. I did too. But I, I think it's also important to remember that these are artist couples. They they have a different way of talking and, and being open about uh, things that basically most of society tells you to cram down. And yeah. I don't know how strong or not strong their relationship with their kids is you know i don't know how keith and emily are when they 
you know, when she hit publish on, you know, this and it went live and they kind of looked at each other like, here we go. Like, were they silently resenting each other still? Or were they like, Mm. you know what? We're in this together. This is who we are. Let's walk through this. And it bonded them. You know, I, I think everybody, every couple gets to kind of make their own bargain with this. I mean, you know, uh, Keith Gesson, I, I can't feel so bad for him. Emily, this was who she was when he met her. He was obviously very attracted to her. The the what was it called? Blog post confessional or something was the cover story of the New York Times magazine that she was on in like 2008, where she talked about um, leaving Gawker and or being the editor of Gawker and having this breakup in the background. And that was another story. I mean, that was what, 15 years ago um, that also created a huge stir and that I also liked. And I also thought, like, I think she writes pretty sentences. And then I I wish sometimes she were a little bit more generous, like to herself Mm. and also to other people. I feel like there's just like a lack of growth in there. And I used to see it a little bit in the Gawker stuff. Gawker was such an influential brand. I mean, it's, it's, it's fall. I mean, it's, it's gone now. It's hard to explain to people that weren't there how much that transformed the way that people, you know, published on the internet, talked, you know, it it basically, so much of that metabolism went to Twitter now. So the snarkiness, the, the, the dunking on people, um, the kind of creating whole cloth narratives out of things that weren't even that interesting in the beginning. But, you know, I always thought that was a little bit adolescent and, and like creatively stuck. Like if you make your living dunking on other people, how are you ever going to get the bravery and courage to write something that's true and meaningful? I mean, like you said, like we, we, we need to be careful about the rocks we throw when we live in these glass houses. Yeah, I mean, I could just talk about this thing forever. I I, I started off, I, I entered the conversation wondering, I hope some of my listeners, some of my subscribers will join us on this journey because some of them might be rolling their eyes and going, why are you talking about some narcissist essay yeah. about how she couldn't have the, didn't have the courage to divorce somebody? But there's a lot in there. I mean, you mentioned... This idea of her wanting the mantle of what his ambition had accomplished, but also understanding she didn't actually want to work for it. There are these tensions of uh, wanting your cake and eating it too that intrigue me. I mean, she's attracted to him and takes up with him because he's this older, more established literary figure. Um, and then wants to break up the marriage because he outcompetes her and out accomplishes her. It's completely contradictory in a way, but that is what a lot of people are like somehow. Not only is, uh, you know, conflict normal in the human heart, but there is this larger point that she's making, I think a little bit subtly, but I I appreciated it, about what I would call the divorce memoir complex. That mm. for the last 10 or 20 years, and really Eat, Pray, Love to me is what like launches this. Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, you know, Wild is another one by Cheryl Strayed. These were all blockbusters that were about divorces, Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Um, millions of copies sold of these books, uh, sometimes made into movies. She mentions more esoteric titles like Re- Rachel Cusk's um, The Aftermath and Sarah Manguso's book. These are books that basically um, portray the idea that divorce is a triumph. 
Yeah, and it is in, it's a liberation, and it is in in particular a liberation for women who are historically an oppressed class. Marriage is another kind of oppression. This is the way to free yourself. I, as a single woman, like chronically single, the only person in my friend group that was like, I want to get married and then like fucking never did. Um, mm -hmm. I have looked at these books over the years with this mix of like fascination and kind of resentment because mm. uh, like a lot of times I've known that the writers were already in other relationships. So it's like they're, they're telling stories about this freedom that they apparently never wanted for themselves because they immediately got attached to someone Ooh, else. This is the Rob Henderson luxury beliefs complex. Kind this of. Is, uh, yeah. 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 And right. it, 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 it uncorks um, a maybe un, outsized resentment in me as somebody that feels like I have been single for a lot of, of years. I've tried very hard. It's very hard for various reasons for women writ large, men writ large at this time, you know, because of the way society has shifted, because of the dating apps, because um, a society that's egalitarian or, or wants to be egalitarian is going to have a really hard time balancing gender differences. And mm. there are just going to be differences, like especially when you get kids involved, like I'm basically a gender essentialist that really does think women, for the most part, are better at taking care of the kids. Um, not everyone's going to think that and not every dad is going to, not every like couple is going to play out that way. But that's been my vast observation. Um, and you know, once you are the primary caregiver and if you want to also be the breadwinner, that's just going to be like an incredible burden. You just you've got a stacked table on one side and an emptying table on the other side. This is something that a lot of my couple friends have had a very hard time working out. I've heard one of the reasons I really liked Emily Gould's essay was that it reminded me of so many conversations I've had over the last 10 years with women and men about marriage. And they've been saying, like, I don't know if this works anymore. You know, mm. there was a time when you just got into a marriage and you didn't get a choice. Yeah. You had to do it. Yeah. But now that we have a choice, there's so many other exits. And there's also like workarounds, like have a polyamorous marriage, join an ethical polycule. I mean, Lear and Berkeley, you you could just, you know, throw a rock and find and and yeah. find somebody to join your your uh oh we marriage. definitely know we definitely know people who get into that space and there's this thing of it's this you know sometimes you have this kind of instinctual revulsion or disgust at other people's choices mm -hmm. and i don't even know if it's an intellectual thing and i don't even know if i even care to defend it on the basis of intellectualism where i just go yeah, ooh, and a demon's there. I mean, that was my observation. So interesting. I think part of the way I see things, uh, it's informed from having gone to Cal and having seen the co-ops and having seen people try yeah. to transcend their very humanity mm -hmm. and fail. Yes. At a very young age, watching people fail, watching people try to do the open relationship thing, watching people just try to do a little bit of heroin here and there, uh, just <laughs> watching people attempt to do this and attempt to be fully liberated from the boundaries of society and ultimately 
those boundaries usually are there for a reason. And sometimes they can be transcended by certain people in certain specific ways. But, you know, to draw a comparison, I never read Eat, Pray, Love, but I watched the movie on an airplane. And I don't, know if I, res I don't know if I resented it, but I was repulsed by it. I was just repulsed by somebody living only for their own liberation that is not appealing to me at all. I, I feel like you are made whole by your commitments to other people. And yeah. it doesn't have to be marriage. It doesn't have to be um, something so specific, but that ultimately defines you. And there was something about, ooh, I just want to kind of find myself eating pasta in Italy. And yeah, I left this poor dope who was with me, but it's all about me and my journey. And I'm going to discover myself. But the person you discover, I think, in life is often revealed by what you mean to other people. I mean, that's that's really what it is. And this is an interesting essay in some ways, even if it even if it inspired a similar disgust in me, because if we are like paleontologists to brush away a lot of the dust, we'll find a very traditional uh, trad domestic message in there about having one's commitments to a marriage and not trying to follow this siren song to fully realized self as, a, as she was yeah. being fed, which I think is... Um, can be destructive. And I'll add one more thing right here. One more thing is I'm riffing and you can take any of this whichever way. I think there's been this, this drumbeat for a few years about how men don't talk about their feelings enough and they yeah. bottle it up. And there's some truth to that. There are men who probably do need to talk about what's ailing them more. But what rarely happens is some sort of counterpoint of uh, where women possibly fail in this realm. It's more comfortable, I guess, in, you know, urban liberal spaces to talk about a failing of men and their, you know, insufficient sensitivity. Sure. But I think if I were to identify it for women, it might be this sort of brand of you go girlism and affirmation. Absolutely. And my wife, I don't want to reveal too much about my own life, but there are people she knows and she'll tell me about some terrible choice they're making. Yeah. And I'll go, well, did you tell them that? And you're like, oh, God, no, <laughs> that would be rude. <laughs> no, it, yeah. said it, it, it said it's something like, uh, I can't do what you're doing. I'm not brave enough. I'm not bold enough to do what you're doing. But deep down, secretly, there's the man, they're doing something crazy. I don't think there's enough of um, sometimes women telling other women, no, your only problem in life isn't that you're just special and amazing and not fully understanding that. Sometimes you're really letting the people around you down and not rising to the moment and not doing what you should be doing um, and fulfilling your, your responsibilities. That's my whole riff and digression. I have like three points and let's see if I can remember all of them as I go through them. The first one is I cannot wait to come on your podcast and talk about my next book, which I haven't even finished yet. Oh. But what you're talking about, the idea, you know, I the book is so much of my own pushback to the to the to the kind of dialogue of, of or the monologue of self-actualization. You know, this idea that we're really like, we're really just supposed to be on a journey to understand ourselves. I really believe that we only understand ourselves in, in connection with other people. Whether we yeah. do that as a married person or a single person is sort of immaterial. But I've become really like kind of like sick to my, like it's up, I'm up to my neck in stories of, you know, 
I want what I want recast as empowerment, recast as some sort of, you know, brave, stiff arm to the man or liberation. Like you, I had a similar revulsion to Eat, Pray, Love. I read it about 10 years ago. Um, I actually think Elizabeth Gilbert is a wonderful magazine writer. She wrote my favorite profile of Tom Waits, Play It Like mm. Your Hair's on Fire. It's fantastic. She's a really good writer. But Eat, Pray, Love is not her b- greatest work. And when I realized that the book was going to be about somebody that divorced her not bad husband in order to go gallivant around the country with her book advance that she'd already sold the book on and Mm. then met her new boyfriend in the last chapter, which P.S. she later divorced and wrote a memoir about. But Mm. like, I was out, I was just like, oh my God, holy shit. And this is going to be the blueprint on which how many divorces are made and like the mm. the industry of Bali is just like basically an, an entire conveyor mm. belt of you know recently divorced single women that are sowing their wild oats there hoping to find their one you know and it it really it is one of the unspeakable things I feel like as I'm I'm very firmly in this memoir and personal essay space I don't know Elizabeth Gilbert but I and so I don't want to come after the queen but like I don't like that book and I don't like the message Mm. of that book. And I think it took me a long time to admit that, you know? Um, But the other thing I wanted to talk about was um, men and, and, and talking about their feelings, you know, and, and that you've made such a good point about women not expressing their own feelings, you know, uh, and I think it's an undersaid point. Like, like the 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 line is like, men never talk about their feelings. Women always do. But I I think if you went to a bar and watched two groups, one male, one female, the guys would be like, "Fuck you, dude. You sound stupid." Um, yes. And that's not exactly a feeling so much as it's like an attitude or an opinion. And the girls would be like, "Yes, queen, you are yeah. right." And then in the bathroom, they'd be like, "She is." a mess. And that dynamic was something I really have tried very hard to untangle myself from. It's very uncomfortable because once you disrupt the, the common female kingdom narrative that anything a girl does is empowerment and everything a girl does is, and and by the way, girl is the right word. I think this is a girl thing. Women know that they got to stand up to their questionable choices and take the hits. Girls want to be told they were right about everything, mm. you know? And and so there is this thing where we will say, you know, and, and I've had like, you know, okay, so like if I break up with somebody or they break up with me, right? Let's say it's that way. Somebody broke up with me and I go to my friend. There's a lot of people that just want to hear like, oh my God, he was an idiot. He's a yeah. fool. What an asshole. And I'm much more interested in the friend that's like, why do you think that happened? What went wrong? What did you see that he didn't see? Um, Is he somebody different than you thought he was? Like, I'm much more interested in second or third order questions than what I find to be not terribly valuable, which is the barrage. In fact, I will often find myself defending guys. You know, why do you think I would have spent two years with an asshole? That, that, Mm. That doesn't speak very well of me. Um, yeah, 
you know, but that's just the knee jerk. That's what they understand they're supposed to say. Yeah, I find it fascinating to just observe because I, I the way you framed it was different than how I framed it in my head about how women talk about their feelings all the time. Men don't talk about their feelings at all. But you're identifying that when women have the feeling of my friend is really fucking up and making some very irresponsible choices, I'm sure they're are people listening they know a woman who would just straight up say so but i have definitely seen this general trend of not saying that because it's not affirming and it sounds judgmental and it's easier just not to and so you listen and you're a sounding board you don't give bad advice you don't tell them to do things that are bad but you don't actually honor the discomfort within you versus with men there's more of an, an inclination to warn your buddy or tell Absolutely. him he's being a baby. You know, Absolutely. You're being a baby. And, and if you really want to take this into dangerous territory, and I don't see why we wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, why not? You can, you can extrapolate on the fact that this kind of plays out in the believe all women trope that feeds me too. That basically anything you say is unimpeachable. And, and that's a very dangerous place from a legal and professional standpoint. Yeah, Aziz Ansari is a monster because I don't even remember what happened in that exact... That felt like the tipping point, Yeah, whatever that was. And that was a clear case. It was a confessional essay where the person writing it made some choices that people were going, eh, you know, you kind of put yourself in a position, you know, a position you to get hurt. Do you remember the name of the magazine that ran that? Oh, my God. Because it was like a knockoff of the cut. Um... <sighs> Babe, babe. You got babe. it. Net. It's babe.net. Yes. It's not even babe.com. Yes. It's babe.net. Oh, my Ethan, God. The, you had to, to have dig that, for that one. And God God knows what important thing was pushed out of my brain to make oh, room yeah. for that one. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Probably your social security number. I mean, that's a great trivia night question. I can hear them <laughs> reading it. Uh, the publication uh, accusing Aziz and Sari of... Misconduct was what? What was it? Oh yes. my God, uh, Ethan, we have to do Twitter kerfuffle Twitter night. Tri Twitter ooh, trivia night. That would be I would that would be actually a really enjoyable little event for one of these uh one of these here substacks. Maybe a blocked yeah. and reported could host it and others yes. are there. Yeah. Um I've got my own thing with the Cavender twins and the free press. Maybe oh, yeah. I would make the cut. I don't know. It's possible. I got to be careful with these conversations. I was already framed as a sexist in the aftermath of that one. It's uh, wow. it, my, you know, my, my advisors warned me that my brand is uh, in a precarious position on that particular subject. Oh, no. Uh, Your advisors? No. There no. are no advisors. Okay. I didn't no, think so. There, well, there, there are no advisors. There's in no the future, HR Well, in the future, we'll all be branded as sexist and, and racist mm. and all the other things. So we can just get on with our day. Well, the AI technology and the deep fakes, you could always plausibly just blame that for whatever happened. And we can all go back to having privacy due to the proliferation of uh, this here technology. Uh, I still feel like there's meat on the bone of this crazy essay. Uh, how do you feel as a Gen Xer's Gen Xer? And I'm, I'm calling you that because you Thank had Dan Thank you. Dan I'm so you had, proud. You had Dan Savage on of Savage Love and you and Dan and Nan, you were just Gen Xing all over the place, just being yeah. 
total Gen Xers. We Gen X um, all over the floor. I had to mop up <laughs> later. So much. It was such a mess. Uh, yeah. Some have identified this as millennials hitting the wall. That that yeah. we, um, perhaps the most ad- permanently adolescent generation at least since the boomers, if not superseding them due to the softness inspired by technology, um, are realizing all at once that we're not young anymore and are, are, are hitting some constraints of life. Do you see a little bit of that in an essay like this? Do you think that it's going to be an ugly thing to behold as we millennials hit middle age? Yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at this, actually. I mean, I think the millennials are so interesting because they came of age into that go-go boom time of the late 90s and early uh, aughts when America was really, I mean, yes, 9-11 happened, but prior to the economic crash, there was so much opportunity. The tech world was booming and it was for young people. I mean, it really, really felt like the world was your oyster. You know, Gen Xers came of age during, um, you know, like our biggest stars were like wearing, you know, flannel and shot mm. themselves in the head. They were just like, yeah. they didn't even, they were just like still like, my parents' divorce will never be okay. I'm, I want to yeah. die. So there was I this... hate being, I hate being famous. I'm Kurt <laughs> Cobain and this is terrible that I've achieved. The, it, it was this weird thing where like you wanted fame more than anything. And then when you got it, you were like, I hate myself. So there was mm. always this under dark undercurrent to the Gen X experience, but millennials y'all were like, you know, girl power, spice girls and boy Mm. bands and hip hop that was all about Prada and Gucci. I mean, it was just like, it was so like the, the kind of psychological priming that must've been done on y'all as, um, you know, just kind of like consumer, consumer capitalist to, you know, but basically just like the world is going to be mine. And then as you emerged into middle career, you know, like I've got to get out of my job that just kind of pays the bills because I'm in my 20s and drinking too much. You Mm. emerge into a job market that just really isn't there. I mean, you know, especially for journalists and, and, and writers, but, you know, this is happening all across many, many different spectrums. And I think there are a lot of Americans that feel as though they were promised the world. There's a really interesting book by Gail Collins, the New York Times writer. Uh, It's called Every when everything changed or something like that. It's basically a history of feminism. One of the things she looks at in the last chapter is that post-feminism, all the surveys show that women are less happy. And Mm. this is often used by conservative commentators to say, well, look, you've screwed everything up. You screwed everything up. And I'm not saying that that's not necessarily true, but what she points out is that there was a day when you told young women they could be one of three things, nurses, teachers, mothers. Mm. Now they're being raised in a world where they could be Beyonce. Yeah. So the least attainable option. Yes. <laughs> when you start telling people they can do anything and then they hit the wall of the real world, that's going to create a roar of resentment. And I yes. do think I see that in this piece. And I think, I think it's probably shared, you know, I remember, you know, salon had, two layoffs that I went through. It was, they were terrible. I, I fucking hated them. They were gutting. They cut everybody but two um, 
two editors, including myself. And um, after the second layoff, the room, there were a bunch of us in the room and it was just so silent. The air was gone. And our one intern who was 25 or 23 at the time piped up and said, I guess I'm never going to get a job. And we were all like, is that's really what you thought of? Like, like people just mm. lost their job. People can't afford to pay for their kids. And of course, that's her first thought, but she said it out loud. Mm. And I thought the entitlement of this generation is too big. I don't even blame her for that. I blame, you know, like I said, this like cultural, you know, brainwashing. And... And yeah, then the other thing is that that marriage is is hard. And she's seven years into... There's a reason why the movie is called The Seven-Year Itch mm. with Marilyn Monroe. You know, there's stats on the fact that marriages get harder after seven years. There's a fascinating statistic that Helen Fisher uses in one of her books that throughout history, the average length of marriage is 14 years. Huh. And in the modern age... Because they died. They died. Yeah, yeah. And in the modern age, it's about 14 years. Huh. Man, um, that's slightly depressing to, to know that we're just uh, perhaps constructed for that. Uh, I don't think we're really constructed for the poly thing. I don't think maybe somebody listening is making it work out there and God bless them. But I don't think <laughs> that uh, I think that's the trying to transcend your own humanity bit. But yeah, uh, I mean, huh. I'm still thinking about this with the millennial aspect and having the world as your oyster, it was very interesting to go through that process because I remember naively thinking, you go to college and then there's just this job waiting for you at the end of college because I was raised in the boom time of the 1990s, which yeah. was a comparatively placid time in human it, history. If not, It was a great decade. Yeah. If not the most placid time in the United States, you Absolutely. could point to the... You could point to the 1950s. I know people would say, well, they had... Um, they were in the trauma know. of the of coming out of that war, though. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the thing. There was the war trauma. People would point to the various constraints uh, that hung over various groups. Then again, that's all complicated by the subversive reality that many people were just happier regardless, uh, which is a whole yeah. other topic and a whole yeah. other thing. But, uh, you know, um, 1990s, uh, people have legal equality, um, the economy's roaring, and there's no specter of nuclear annihilation hanging over everybody. Yep. Um, this was uh, what I grew up in. And then the economic crash happened when I graduated, and there were just no jobs. Uh, I was trying to get a job doing anything. I was trying to get a job bagging groceries, and I couldn't because other uh. people who had been grocery baggers had just been fired from their banking job or whatever. And so uh, there is a bit of a pipeline, whatever. Uh, is it true that you tried to get a job bagging groceries? And, oh, and yeah. You're, that's not oh, a common yeah. hyperbole. No, uh, on P Piedmont Grocery in, uh, in Oakland, uh, near my house I was sharing with friends where uh, I had a walkthrough room that cost $400 a month. And I was trying to get, uh, I was just trying to get any kind of job I can. But you know what? What happened is I couldn't find a job doing anything, and so I sold my bar mitzvah stock and applied <laughs> for an internship with Salon.com, 
and just went, okay, I've got enough for rent for a while. It's only 400 a month. I'll scrimp and save. There was this place, there was this place uh, up the street on Piedmont Ave uh, that had this happy hour where they would put hors d'oeuvres out and they would entice you to buy a drink. So that was like a, a good way to maybe get a dinner was mm-hmm. to show up and act as though I was oh somebody God. there to buy a drink and I would eat all the little free samples right there. Um, <laughs> you're reminding me, you're reminding me that one of the most viral essays I ran during my long tenure at Salon was about millennials on food stamps. Mm, yeah. Um, I got some EBT after after my job for a few months. Uh, it, it wasn't that much, but I remember being in the grocery store and really trying to just count just every little item um, because there just wasn't, just didn't have any money left. And uh, Mays yeah. is asking me what company was. It was one of those series of stocks. I do my I do have a great friend of mine. I, I mean, some people could guess who he is, uh, but he with his bar mitzvah stock in 97 or whenever it was bought apple and i mean that's just an incredible decision by a 12 year old wow uh, and has held it has wow. held it since then um i mean that's uh yeah yeah he Maze, was a Maze man it. like he yeah, did become yeah. a man that day yeah i mean he <laughs> trying to think of my friend is is he's very self-possessed, but is he mature? That's a whole other topic. Mm. Um, I can't reveal who it was, although Anthony Mays guessed it, and some people might guess it who are listening right now. Uh, where was I? Oh, yes. Um, I also think there's this aspect where the media, the media, not like the media as in somebody trying to give us a message, but just you absorb so many stories, right? And they're so entrancing. And you wrote about this so beautifully in your memoir about how it does provide the substrate of what you think reality should be. And the people in these stories are creative and interesting. And that makes you feel like you should become somebody like that. Mm-hmm. There aren't too many movies about this sort of Japanese existence of a person just quietly doing uh, a fairly mundane job excellently. Uh, yeah. That's just not, that's not the stuff of movie. And I do think it, it it inculcates the sense in you that you should that you are fit to do something else or you're worthless, that you should be the object of other people's attention or you've failed. Um, and I guess I've kind of made a creative job work for me, and so it's worked out. But as Freddie DeBoer has pointed out, there are just too many uh, there aren't enough spaces for all the people who want to do this. And so what we're having a lot of the time are these disaffected elites who were great humanities majors and aspired to be writers and wanted to be this and wanted to be that. And then it all petered out and they're along with the rest rest of the Gawker crew, just kind of bitter. And that's part of our cultural conversation, even if they couldn't claim the mantle of being a big deal, like an Elizabeth Gilbert, um, there are just more people on the outside looking in uh, who are disappointed, and I doubt their disappointing uh, their disappointment is just constrained to that sliver of the creative class. I think there are a lot of millennials out there That's who right. think they coulda, woulda, shoulda been something. Whereas my grandfather just sold insurance, and it wasn't like he was ever selling insurance, going, "I should have been the president of the United States." What the hell happened? Absolutely, one of the things that they see in happiness studies is that. One of the best things you can do to assure your happiness is to lower your expectations. 
And Mm -hmm. you think about what we did increasingly to generations of young kids was we just continued to expand their their expectations. You can be anybody you want. You can do anything you want. You can live anywhere you want. Um, You don't have to get married. You don't have to do anything for, you know, like it's just... And 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 so what happens when the rubber meets the road of, geez, I don't really have a real career. You know, I studied whatever. Yeah. Gender studies in, in college. Turns out that doesn't that's not useful. Yeah. And, you know, these publications that I want to write for, if you want to be a writer, pay like 150 bucks. I mean, by the way, um, one thing I want to add, because you're so good about tracking cultural trends, I just want to slide this in here that the personal essay boom that started really like in 2008, it's often tracked, traced back to that Emily Gould cover in New York Times Magazine. But the Mm. reason that it blossomed over that years was because of the recession. So a lot of online publications like Salon got rid of their... uh, staff writers. They couldn't afford them anymore. And they went to entirely freelance. And at Salon, we stripped our uh, pay from $500. It went down to $150. Well, Mm. if you're a reporter, you're not going to be terribly interested in selling a story for $150. But if you have a beautiful essay about your mother dying, you might be really glad to have the eyeballs that Salon is going to give you. And this also, it coincides with the rise of social media. So, you know, Facebook and Instagram, they're all kind of inward turning and externally preoccupied. And, you know, that went along with the personal essays. Well, in 2017, Gia Tolentino wrote a piece in The New Yorker called The Personal Essay Boom is Over. And, Mm. you know, kind of calling the whistle on this boom time that had seen the rise and fall of Exogene. Um, You know, uh, Salon had folded their personal essay section. Uh, I was gone. And, uh, you know, Washington Post did personal essays. BuzzFeed did essays. All of them kind of got out of the business. And it was because everybody went into the business of Donald Trump Mm. and resistance and MAGA. And all of a sudden, it was like writing about whether or not you wanted to divorce your husband seemed like a really minor who gives a shit when... You know, I, if you remember the existential volcano dread of a volcano of that time, it was like, the world is on fire. We're going to yeah. die. GQ and, for, was it Teen G? Not Teen G. Ah, teen what? Vogue. It, it, teen Vogue. It, Vogue. Teen Vogue. And what's her face became a celebrity overnight with some essay, Trump is gaslighting America. I remember. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. 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 But, I mean, it, 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 it's very so that was so 2017 is rough math back of the envelope uh you know 7 years 6 and mm. a half 7 years so um i think people are ready for stories again i don't think they ever really stopped wanting them you know the me too stories were actually like the what i think what happened to the personal essay boom is that the energy transferred over into me too takedowns mm. um yeah and, and, you know, so, but what we see with the excitement around this story, and remember, it was only one of two huge viral pieces at the cut that day. There was also a huge piece about a woman that put 50,000 clams into a, yeah. into a shoebox because of a scam. <laughs> it was the craziest story. Did you read that one? 
I didn't. I saw everybody talking about it and saying that we need a collaboration between Gould and the woman who got scammed. And everybody debated about whether this was a brave act of honesty or whether this woman was an idiot and I would never get scammed uh, like so. I, I saw the, the I saw the fallout from it. Yeah, well, that story is still number one on their site. The Gould piece is number three. Um, you know, I think people want to talk about this scam story because whether or not you're married, whether or not you want to divorce your husband, we are all sitting ducks for scam artists. Mm. And, you know, and even if you aren't, your parents certainly are. Like my parents are now at this age where I feel like most of my time with my parents is spent like checking their devices to make sure they haven't like accidentally signed yeah. on for some random subscription um, or, you know, who like they they are dear people that i've started to think of the iphone as just basically elder abuse they just yeah. do not know how to manage that thing so anyway this is somebody that you know she takes out $50,000 now i don't know uh, look everybody's fi- and and the other thing is if you want to get people like what is dirtier laundry than people's finances it's not oh, even yeah. it's more secret than their sex life in a lot of cases. People can be very open about their sex life, but when it comes to what they've got in their banking and checking savings account, they will shut down fast. And this is somebody who admits through the course of the story that she's got $80,000 tucked away, which is going to, and she's a freelance writer, and that's going to raise a lot of eyebrows for people that have been, you know, making 150 bucks a pop on, you know, whatever babe.net became. (laughs) yeah the financial aspect of it it's shameful for people Uh, a lot of nba players get scammed and they don't talk about it openly or at least that openly but they get they get reliably scammed people i mean they get just like it's the top nba talent it's the top scammers uh they they know what they're doing. They work in concert. Sometimes the financial advisor is in cahoots with the agent. Um, and some of these guys are good. There was an NBA superstar uh, who got scammed and another NBA superstar defended the financial advisor at the trial. And then the guy who defended the financial advisor got scammed himself by that guy. Later oh, on. stop I mean, it. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. Well, you're reminding me that, you know, Elvis got scammed. I mean, if you see the movie with Austin Butler, the Baz Luhrmann movie that came out a couple of years ago, you know, that's a tragic story of being scammed by his own manager and put yeah. into to Hawk. Um, you know, Billy Joel got scammed out of millions of dollars. The, you know, basically, your your story about the NBA players, and I'm sure this happens across professional sports, you know, is basically the higher you rise, the larger the target. We know this. And yeah. if you're partying and you're not paying attention to your finances, and one of the things about being good at sports or being good at music or whatever is that you're not necessarily good at math, um, yeah. and you pay someone to, to do that for you, and if that person is not an honest broker, literally, um, yeah. you can find yourself in a deep, dark hole, and it's humiliating. And now that is something that can be targeted to any rando, you know, who whose number can be found you know, on the dark web, you know, this person's a sucker. Mm. And I've fallen for, I almost fell. I came very close. There was a scam where this, uh, somebody called me out of nowhere and told me that I owed money on a toll tag in a 
in a city. Ooh, it's a smart scam. It's a very smart scam because I had been to that city and it seemed yeah. very, very plausible that I had taken a toll road and didn't remember it. Mm. And so they kept telling me it now had ballooned to where I owed like $600. And I was like, well, I need to see these. And it went on and on and on. Finally, somebody listened to me talking on the phone and said, hang up on them. And I was like, yeah. really? And they were like, absolutely hang up. And I did, and they never called back. But I I really was, I was like, did I? I don't know. Mm. I mean, that's a good one. The other good ones are where they're the people who are trying to save you from being scammed. And there are such, I mean, the, the confidence games. I, this is why I love yeah. Gift of Fear, not just um, as an instructional, but as a book about human psychology, the Gavin yes. Becker book from the late 1990s about the five tricks the five tricks predators use and and how to see them and how uh he has these terms for it one is forced teaming where they sidle up to you and they kind of create a scenario where you and them are are kind of in cahoots together where the criminal is saying to the woman who's got all her grocery bags and he wants to um you know hold some of the bags to get into the house and goes come oh, on yeah. we've got a we've got a hungry cat up there like you're sort of oh insinuating God. that you're you know but i i can't remember all the rules inability to hear no is one of them and uh yeah. typecasting is another one where you create a frame that you want somebody to try to buck against to your advantage where she doesn't want the help from him and he goes there's such a thing as being too proud, you know, you know, the sort of wow. instill that, uh, get that, get that response of, I'm not too proud. I'm like, okay, no, yeah. You know, um, but now I see it, I, I see it in life. I see these little, and it's not always predators or horrible people. My neighbor, uh, he was in sales for some tech company and he's just an effortlessly good salesman and yeah. he does personal training on the side. And I can see these, these aspects to it where he offered to, you know, have me do some personal training at his place. And uh, I go, yeah, I don't really want to. And he goes, dude, if it's a money thing, I totally get it. And then like in your head, like, no, I have money. I, what are you yeah, talking about? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'll give you all my money. I'll yes. give you all my money. Come Such on, let's do it now. Such a good line. <laughs> <laughs> Such Come a good on. line. Well, um, Nancy and I were talking about these scams on our podcast and she was bringing up the fact that like once they get AI into this and they'll be able to mimic our voices, mm. you know, people like you and me, we have plenty of, of material out there that they can, they can run through the filters and get, you know, so one of the common, one of the common scams for older people is to call them up and say, you know, we've got your daughter hostage um, and oh, it's very, very scary. It's very, very that scary. But imagine, oh if, imagine if that had the voice, you know, mommy, oh, help. Jesus. Oh yeah. my God. That is so, oh man, that's dark. Just some of the things, I mean, this is why famous people I think are sometimes more jaded than other people. Absolutely. observe this around the NBA is because they they're such this object of fame and money that they have a darkness revealed to them and other people that we have been blessedly spared of yeah. where I didn't know that my best friend was going to try to do that to me or my yeah. own family member was just was going to try to do that to me or the lengths the extent people will go to 
to get that scam out of you. And now perhaps we're all going to learn what they learn about the amount of uh, darkness of the soul out there. Um, well, that's terrifying. Is there any, I'm wondering if there's any sort of topic to pivot to as a little palate cleanser, uh, you know, to conclude the podcast. That's, uh, that's just very, very difficult to reckon with right there, Sarah. I mean, you I, know, know, I, think, I, I know I'm the interviewer theoretically, you know, I had well, something in my head, but I can't remember what it was. Well, why don't I tell you about my second book? Um, okay. Because it's about singlehood. You oh, know, it's it's I, an interesting I will, I will listen to that, but I do have a topic for us. <laughs> okay. Okay. Give it to me. <laughs> no, give me the book spiel. No, no, no. We'll outro on your book spiel. We'll outro okay. on the book spiel to like build a certain appetite and awareness for it. Um, uh, Richard Hanania is theoretically going to appear on this podcast. He seems to be a very taboo individual. Yes. Uh, Producer Mays doesn't know anything about any of these people. He has no idea what we're walking into with this right now. I'll keep him I'll keep him in the dark so he just doesn't know and can't be faulted for anything. Um, you guys kind of debated him because there was this big uh, fallout with him and his online persona from years yeah. ago uh, was unveiled. Yeah. With uh, ugly things said uh, of the racial variety and whatnot, and he wrote his... I, I guess, uh, apology or accounting for and is still, um, I think, an influential intellectual. I actually think mm -hmm. it, there are people in tech who read Richard's work and think about it. And he is just a, a particular person. Nancy finds him utterly revolting. Yeah, she's uh, having none of it. You find him somewhat intriguing mm -hmm. should he be on this podcast is yes absolutely good... because okay, i want to well, listen to it um yeah. you know you might get a very different answer from nancy i don't know but for me yeah no absolutely i'm dying to listen to this you know one of the things that he said in that kind of mea culpa was look i was a really um I was a really sad, lonely individual. I was basically like an incel. I didn't have a girlfriend. Uh, and and a lot of people, I, I think understandably, were like, dude, that's not an excuse. I would put it in the category of that's not an excuse, but that can help be an explanation and a rationalization. We hear a lot about incels. We hear a lot about this darker world of trolling. And we mm. very rarely get dispatches from those individuals. What is it that's going on in their mind? Do they mean this? Is this just they're mad at the world? Is this a kind of... Uh, provocation for a world that won't listen to them. You know, I'm very interested in that. So I felt as though he were peeling back the layers a little bit, but some people felt like it was empty bullshit to explain, you know, racist beliefs. So, you know, I, I really don't know because I don't know this yeah. person. I will say that since that, I, I only learned about him when we did that show talking about that, that particular scandal. And then since then, he's come um, on my Twitter feed a couple different times with interviews with very interesting people. I've watched his interviews. He seems like a kind of strange dude. You know? Yeah. Like No, I I I think that would be a fair assessment. I I met him and I found him to be unlikable. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that secretly. This is on a public podcast. I'll have him on the podcast. And it wasn't because I was just shaking my fist. And those things you said about people I'm so mad about. Um, no, I I found him to be 
in the back and forth unlikable. But the funny thing about it, there was an honesty to it as well, where he said things that I would regard as rude, and I found that to be unlikable. But I also found it intriguing that somebody would be that rude. And this yeah. gets, now we're bringing the conversation full circle, which is right. what does likability matter? I mean, I know Hanania says he wants to be the greatest intellectual of this generation. Hmm. Um, should one be likable to aid in that ambitious goal? Uh, or are intellectuals just rarely likable? Um, I mean, the Steve ones Jobs was super, Steve Jobs was super unlikable, right? You often hear that about him, about working for him. I mean, I don't know where I come down on at all. I will say that Hanania's kind of signature idea to package it into one is that wokeness is downstream of law. And whatever you want to call wokeness, this term has fallen out of fashion. We can say political correctness, sensitivity, whatever. Uh, his contention, his argument is that it's law. It's a judge says something. Um, I mean, it appears that a judge just invented the concept of diversity that we talk about all the mm. time. It was just kind of, uh, you know, just off the cuff. A, a judge said it in a case in the Supreme Court. And then we have this concept we talk about. I think it's a very important concept. And whether it's true or not can be debated, but I don't see too many people debating it. If so much of our cultural conversation is actually informed by what judges say, and we're all just following them, well, that's really interesting. There are massive implications, and a lot of those fights that we talk about in the legal system matter a lot more. So I think it's worth talking about because that he's worth talk, talking about because that concept, I think, is is worth talking about regardless of uh what anybody feels about him but yeah i'm i'm like you i think both of us have a little bit there's an allure to whatever is taboo and that makes it intriguing and it, it, you want to kind of explore it and sort out okay what's going on here what's up with this um you know what is with this individual who has some overlap with people who are liked by a lot of people, but is also, you know, forbidden and is in the no-go yeah. zone to others. Yeah, we need people that are unlikable. We need people that are willing to say things that are not going to necessarily get them plaudits. And throughout most of history, I think that's probably one of the markers for greatness, really. Uh, I, mean, I, I imagine it was helpful to be liked, but I don't know that it won you wars. I don't know that it got you the kingdom. Um, yeah. And it can often, probably just as often, be a liability. Um, so I, I think that people like him are necessary. I don't know him well enough to have an informed opinion. I'm looking forward to this conversation with him so that I can, I can get to know him a little bit better, your conversation with him. Um, you know, he, he he's somebody that, for whatever reason, I... I watch some of his stuff but I don't follow him on Twitter and I don't I would not feel comfortable like responding to him in the comments like hey Richard mm. you know like, I, I wouldn't <laughs> want my friends to be like oh yeah there's Sarah palling around on on it's Twitter so with funny Richard where it's so funny where people draw the line because yet you're you're comfortable in this setting saying what you're saying but on Twitter it's just a different I used to have that thought where I'll go on any kind of Fox News podcast, but I almost feel like, not that I make decisions this way, but if you were on the show on Fox News with the Chiron or whatever, yeah. the people around me would 
now it's a visual thing. Now it's a visual thing to them. And it's more worrying. It's more concerning. They've got to uh, distance themselves. Although I don't think people think like that as much anymore. I think there's been a vibe shift. Like, as you're pointing out, there's been a vibe shift toward the personal essay. That's coming back in the vogue. Mm -hmm. Pardon the pun. And a vibe shift away from politics because the two options are just obviously... Uh, their brains are mush and they're just prime opportunities for scammers. Uh, right. So it's, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, like, you know, we've had six years, seven years of politics all the time. And it's like to quote Dr. Phil, how's that working out for y'all? It's not like, great. Everybody's miserable. Like, like no. the, the polarization of the country is horrible. The happiest people I know aren't online. Um, You know, and don't give a shit about politics. And there's a really good argument for not caring at all because your ability to affect a presidential election is a drop in the ocean. Yeah, this is how I felt the whole time. And it's not a popular sentiment, but you should just get along with people you disagree with in your family because you have no influence uh, at all on what's going to happen. Um, And people got very much into this mode where they felt like they were on a team and fighting a fight. And uh, those people, the most tiresome people on Facebook. Okay, give us a little bit of an appetizer of what's going to happen with your book. I can't wait to read it. Uh, I'm very intrigued. Like I said, the the memoir that you wrote about your journey through alcoholism, I think is just it was just so good. So uh, I want to hear about this one. Thank you. Well, I'll keep it short because speaking of appetizers, I'm 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 gonna go get myself a Tex-Mex dinner here in Dallas wow. in a minute because it's it's dinner time around these parts. Um, but uh, I will let. It's called Unattached right now. It may change, but that's um, and I, I the subhead I'm playing with right now is the solo life that I chose and never chose at all. Mm. And the idea with that there is. You know, there are absolutely decisions that I made that uh, led to a life of kind of freedom, independence. And and then there are also decisions that were made for me. I mean, I had boyfriends I wanted to have families with that left me. I had, you know, uh, various life circumstances that pivoted and and kept, you know, it, it's not exactly, I think, I think in our in our modern consumer centric technology riddled life, we want to believe that we make the choices about our own lives. And I think when you drill down into it, what you see is that we're often not in charge at all. Mm. And, you know, life happens to us. And then the story is about what we do in response to that. And so this is about somebody who finds herself in her forties, single, no kids, having wanted to be married, having wanted to to have children, but ultimately steps up to the life that she built and didn't build the one that she has. It's all that we can do. So I'm finishing it up right now. I don't know when it'll come out, but I hope to come on your show and talk about choices and singlehood and dating and love and marriage and babies and all that stuff. I think that in addition to being really good might be something that's quite resonant just because uh, I'm just seeing more and more women of this generation, the generation before, um, arriving at this point of realizing that they're not going to have kids. Yes. And yes, in theory, they chose it, but they almost didn't know that they had yeah. as little time as they had. And this is going to be 
this is just going to be more and more of a thing. So it's um, a huge growing demographic. So like, you know, I think it's something like 40% of millennials are single at the age of 40. Mm. And that's a huge number. And a number of those women would like to have children, but have not. Um, usually when you look at the demographic, it's like 90% of the women would like to. But, um, you know, we most often hear from the 10% that are very proudly not interested in it, which is yeah. fine. And I'm glad we've had a space for that. But there hasn't been this space for somebody that was like, oh, no, I would have really loved that. But because of various things in my life, it didn't happen. And I had to make a decision to, you know, be okay. Like, I, I can only choose how I respond to that. Yeah. So. Well, it, it just sounds like almost a different way to find uh, maturity and purpose where people will talk about having kids as the way one does it, but mm -hmm. also accepting that you're not having kids. I mean, there are people in my family uh, who are older and just never, never had kids. And it's not like, I mean, we're almost, I think, especially more so in the conservative space, I think it's generally good if people have kids. I think they do find fulfillment, but it almost becomes this thing of if you don't, then your life has been just meaningless which is crazy right. because right. so many people don't and often don't by choice and are part of things that are meaningful so i can't wait for that and yeah i, I want to read that yeah thank you thank you it should be it should i hope it's a banger so well well uh i appreciate you doing this i don't want to hold up your text max oh and i'd even say thank you uh you and nancy gave me a very good shout out a couple months ago which i know because I'm a listener, so I, you, I, I heard you. it. I heard it by happenstance, and uh, was uh, very thankful for that. And uh, this is the awkward outro, Sarah. I don't have a good way to stick the landing on these. Uh, it happened. Uh, we talked about an essay. <laughs> it might have been good. Uh, our discussion. I didn't exactly do great on the exposition, but uh, you know, it, this is the conversation. Now it's ending. Thanks, Sarah. dude. Dude, I'm going to get text next. <laughs> <laughs>